Um, I'll, I'll ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, and I'll try not to turn to Luke chapter 9. <laughs> and um, while you're finding your place, uh, let me say a few words of introduction. This morning, as we come to Luke chapter 19, we'll find our place in verse 45. And here what we're going to see in Luke's gospel is a transition. It's a transition that is historical, but also that spans all of eternity. It's a transition that is one with eternal uh, consequences, and it concerns the temple of God. And so what I want to do before we read the text is to give you a sense of where we are in the course of salvation history with respect to the temple of God. The temple in Jerusalem was the place where God made His glory dwell for the people of Israel. It was a signal, a sign of His presence with His people. It was a place where under Solomon, when they finished constructing the temple sometime around 957 B.C., God manifestly made His glory dwell there in the temple. It was a holy place, and it was a reminder to the people that God was with them. But that temple came to an end. It was destroyed in the year 586 B.C. by the Babylonians, and it was destroyed because the people abandoned God and turned to idols. And yet, after God sent His people into exile, He restored them to the land, and they began to rebuild a second temple at His command, which was completed sometime around the year 516 B.C., That is the temple into which Jesus will come in this text in Luke's Gospel. And it's a temple that itself would come to its end in the year 70 A.D., this time at the hands of the Roman armies. It was significant and continues to be significant, at least in our memory, as that symbol, that picture, that sign that God was with His people, as we have understood it. But it's also significant in the Gospel of Luke as a setting for key events. You recall from the birth narrative in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 1, the very first event that Luke records, where does it take place but in the temple, as the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah, serving in the temple, and he tells him that he will receive a son, he will bear a son, who will be the one who goes before the Lord Jesus Christ. And then that birth narrative, that long narrative that spans some 12 years, comes to its end with two scenes that take place where but in the temple. There we see Jesus as He is taken to Jerusalem as an infant. He's taken up in the arms of a man named Simeon. And there is a prophet there, Anna, and they're in the temple where this is taking place. And then once more at the age of 12, when His parents went to Jerusalem for Passover, they leave Jesus behind quite by accident, not knowing where He is, and where do they find Him but in the temple. You see how Luke's narrative begins with events, key events, important events taking place in the temple, and yet very little is said of the temple from there until the passage where we come to this morning. You see only two references, one when Jesus is tempted, and Satan takes him to the pinnacle of the temple, and one more in a parable where Jesus tells about two men who go up into the temple to pray. But from Christ's perspective, the settings where the things take place that Luke is recounting The temple is distant. It's not mentioned. We hear a lot about Jerusalem, but we hear very little about the temple. But suddenly here in Luke 19.45, we're going to see that Jesus comes into the temple. And the events from 19.45 all the way to 21, verse 37, will take place there. And in many cases, what Jesus says will concern this temple. 
And then at the very end of the Gospel of Luke, the final verse, we find the disciples doing what but worshiping with joyful praise in the temple. You see how Luke has, in a sense, bookended two major portions of the Gospel and the Gospel entirely by things that are set within the temple. And in this It's not just an interesting observation that these things happen in this particular setting, but we're going to see something take place as what's revealed to us is the purpose of God, not merely for this structure that was in Jerusalem at that time in Jesus' life, but also for Christ and for the church, which will become the temple of God. Christ as the cornerstone and His people from every tribe and tongue and nation, as precious stones that are being gathered together and built into, as we read this morning from 1 Peter 2, a holy temple, a spiritual house, a dwelling place for the Lord. And that transition is going to begin to take place in the text before us. As we see pictures of corrupted worship and pictures of corrupt leaders in and around the temple, and Jesus speaking about himself as the cornerstone upon whom this greater temple, this ultimate temple will be built. And what these texts do, I I propose to you, is they, in initiating this picture of transition, they also warn us and invite us to be different from the religious leaders by considering God's purposes and aligning ourselves with God's purposes to make for himself a dwelling place that is founded upon Christ and joined together through men and women of all nations. After that somewhat lengthy introduction, I think we're prepared then to look at this text and to read it and to observe all of these references to the temple and how it all comes together in this way. So if you found your place in Luke 19, verse 45, would you follow along with me and I will read to verse 20 of chapter 20. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who it is that gave you this authority? He answered them, I, will, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, and let it out to tenants, and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants, so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, 
they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. But they feared the people, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray this morning that you would give us wisdom and understanding as we come to your word and we consider what you would teach us and how you would instruct us from your word. We pray that we, you would soften our hearts and open our minds to receive it so that we might be people who align ourselves with your purposes by focusing our lives upon your Son in joyful praise and worship, acknowledging him as Lord and receiving him by faith that we might align ourselves with your purposes by seeking the progress of the gospel, that means by which you build this holy temple that is made up of all believers from every time and every place. And we look forward to that day when this righteous congregation, made righteous by faith in your Son, will stand before your throne and sing praises forevermore. So we pray that through your word, you might impress upon us the certainty of these things, the certain fulfillment of all your purposes, that you might cause us to follow in faith as we pursue those things that you are doing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I said that these texts warn us and invite us to be different from the religious leaders by aligning ourselves with God's purpose to make for himself a dwelling place that is founded upon Christ and joined together through men and women from all nations. And what we're going to see as we look at this text is that we're going to see it in, th in three uh, kind of uh, th sweeps through the text. We're going to go back through it rather quickly three different times. And as we do, we're going to look at the picture of the corrupt leaders in Israel and their attitudes and their actions and how they had corrupted the worship that took place in the temple. We're also going to look at God's purposes as Luke sets them forward for us here in Luke 19 and 20, how Luke presents the things that Christ is doing as the purposes of God. And finally, we're going to bring these two pictures together as we consider the corrupt leaders in their opposition to God's purposes and God's purposes in their certainty with respect to the opposition of those corrupt leaders. And all of that then, I think, will warn us and invite us to differ from them by aligning ourselves with God's purposes. Well, let's consider the corrupt leaders that we see in this passage first then. We have three narratives that unfold before us. First, Jesus comes into the temple, right there in verse 45. He entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. 
the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people. However, they were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And so we see this picture of opposition and corruption that is taking place here in the temple precincts. What happens here is not that Jesus goes into the structure that we think of perhaps when we think of the temple, into the uh, holy place or behind the curtain, into the most holy place, but rather into the courtyard that surrounds the temple. And there, there would be uh, merchants who were uh, doing a couple of different things. They were changing money. It was not considered lawful to pay the temple tax with the money that people would normally have in the Roman world. And so they had to turn it into a different kind of money, a Tyrian shekel from Tyre. Not because that money came from a better place, but because it, had a, it was a, a purer silver. And so there was an arbitrary rule that was made that this is the appropriate means by which we will pay the temple tax. And as you can imagine, these merchants were certainly making a profit off requiring this exchange of money. And they would have also been making a profit off the sale of animals. You can imagine again, here's the Passover when many Jews would come from all around the world where they had been scattered. Many of them had not returned to the land of Israel. And they would come as pilgrims at the time of Passover. And they naturally would not bring the animals that they would sacrifice with them on a long journey from, say, Greece or from Egypt or wherever they were living. And so they would need to procure some animals, a ram, a, a goat, a pigeon, a, a bull, whatever it was that they were going to sacrifice. And again, merchants would be selling those things there in the temple precincts. Now, that was expected, but perhaps they're profiting to uh, an unreasonable degree off of this. Luke doesn't clue us into exactly what here causes Jesus to respond in this way, but what they've done is they've turned the Lord's house, as he says, into something other than what God intended for it. They've turned it into a den of robbers. Here, Jesus cites the words of Jeremiah 7, verse 11, where Jeremiah made the same charge against the people of Israel prior to Babylon's destruction of the first temple. And they were doing much the same thing. Their, their sin would have been perceived as much greater uh, than what was going on here among the merchants in the, in the temple because they were bringing idolatrous practices into the temple precincts. And at the beginning of that passage, Jeremiah says, don't say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, he's saying, don't say that destruction and judgment won't come upon us because this is the temple of God. It'll never be destroyed. Jeremiah prophesies of its destruction in that context. And part of the reason is they've turned it into a den of robbers. Not only is there idolatry that was rampant in Jeremiah's day, but they've also used it to profit themselves in some way or form. And here Jesus is essentially saying, you're doing what your fathers did. You've turned this place into a den of robbers. And so he drives them out, those who sold. They've corrupted the practices that were uh, common and even expected in some cases in the temple. And they've turned it into a business for profit. They've lost sight of what God was intending for his house. And so they're seeking to enrich themselves and exalt themselves through what they're doing there. And as Jesus drives them out, then he takes his place there and he begins to teach in the temple. The people, he's teaching concerning God's word and God's ways in the same ways that we, we might suggest, in the same ways that we see all the way through Luke's gospel as he calls them back to a proper worship of the Lord in a way that the corrupt leaders had not been doing. In the next passage, then, we see the corrupt leaders again as they're seeking in verse 47 and 48 
They're seeking Jesus, but they're not finding a way, but they, they're, they're intent to destroy him. And we remember all those people in Luke's gospel who were seeking a way to Jesus. They're not finding a way, but Jesus reached out and sought them and saved them. And we see that same language in an ironic way. They're not seeking Jesus by faith. They want to destroy him. In their corruption, they're opposing one, the one who was promised and sent by God as the Christ. And so they come to Jesus in the temple as he's preaching the gospel. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders come up and they, they want to know, where does your authority come from? What enables you to do what you are doing? Who gave you this authority? But Jesus is not going to play their game. Rather, he's going to put them to the test. In other words, in a sense, he's showing whether or not, he's determining whether or not they will accept the true and right answer. What do you say about John? Do you say that when John came baptizing, that his baptism was from heaven or from man? In other words, did God send John, or did John just make this up on his own and decide to do this of his own initiative? What do you say? And we go back and we think back to Luke chapter 3, when John came baptizing, how Luke presented that as a fulfillment of what Isaiah spoke in Isaiah 40, verse 3 to 5. And yet, we also see in Luke chapter 7, and we're reminded from Luke 7, 29 and 30, how when Jesus in a prior situation brought up John's baptism and his proclamation calling people to repent and believe, the Pharisees and the religious leaders rejected, and here the, the wording of Luke in Luke 20, uh, 7, 29 and 30 is key. They didn't reject John. Luke says they rejected the purpose of God. They rejected the purpose of God for themselves. They would not repent when they were called by God's prophet, John the Baptist, to repent because of their corruption. And so finally, in this third picture then, Jesus depicts them in a parable. And we see at the, in verse 19 that they... They again do what they were always doing. They're seeking to lay hands on him because they perceive that the parable concerns them. It was obvious to them. Jesus is talking about us and we don't like it. And you look at this picture. Here's a man. He's planted a vineyard. And that recalls to us language from Isaiah 5, where in Isaiah 5, Isaiah characterized the people of Israel as the vineyard of the Lord. There, Isaiah's focus is on, on the vineyard itself producing uh, sour grapes and the judgment God will bring up against the vineyard. Here, a slightly different picture where Jesus focuses on the leaders of that vineyard, or as he describes them here in this parable, the tenants, to whom the master of the vineyard had rented out the vineyard. They were to produce a crop. They had a great privilege, and yet they would not appropriately repay the master who had rented them this vineyard. And so as the parable then unfolds, as the master goes into another country for a long while, and he lets it out to tenants, he sends servants to the tenants to collect essentially the rent, some produce from what the, uh, what the vineyard produced. Give me some of the fruit from my vineyard. But the tenants, they act foolishly and they act cruelly at every stage. What do they do? They beat one servant, they send him away empty-handed. They beat the next, they send him away empty-handed. They beat the third, they send him away empty-handed. Each time they treat the, the, the servant shamefully. And we're reminded of a long history in Israel whereby God sent his people prophets, and yet what did they do? They persecuted the prophets who came before Christ. And so finally, the master says, I have one more, I'll send them a beloved son. And what do we do? We hear the language that we heard at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son. 
in whom I'm well pleased. We hear the language at Jesus' transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And here Jesus speaks about a beloved son being sent to collect the produce, the harvest that is due to the master. What do they do? They say to themselves, they, 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 this language said to themselves, and what you see in verse 5, they discussed it with one another. It's hard to see this in English, but it recalls a prophecy that was made back in Luke chapter 2 when Simeon took Jesus in his arms and he said, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And he says of him that he will reveal the thoughts of many hearts. These words echo those words. And here in the parable, the tenants are speaking amongst themselves. They're doing that very thing that Simeon spoke about. Just as in verse 5, when Jesus challenged them, Concerning the authority that was given John, they discussed it with one another. And they vacillated and would not answer him because they knew no matter what, he would catch them in it. You see why it's so clear that they are the tenants and what they're doing, at least the way that Luke presents it to us and the way that they clearly understood it. He's revealing their thoughts and how foolish they are. They look at the heir, the one to whom this master gives all his possessions, his beloved son, the heir of his kingdom, you might say. And they don't think, well, now it's come upon us. Now we've got to pay our rent. Now we've got to provide the fruit. They somehow think that if they kill the heir, then the inheritance will come to them. We sit back here and we say, what utter foolishness. But this is what corrupt leaders look like. They think the inheritance will be ours and they're utterly foolish. It will not, as we'll see and we come back over this text. But this is what corrupt leadership looks like. We can summarize these ideas in that corrupt leaders seek wealth that comes from man as their priority. Just as these merchants and uh, under the auspices of the religious leaders, they profited from changing money and from selling animals to pilgrim worshipers, taking advantage of the commandments and what God commanded for proper worship, using that to create a for-profit business. So corrupt leaders seek that wealth that comes from man. Corrupt leaders also seek the praise that comes from man. And you see that in verse 1 through 8. Why wouldn't they answer Jesus? They're afraid of man. They're afraid of the people. Did it come from heaven or from man? Well, they've made up their mind. They don't believe it came from heaven. That's why they rejected John. But the people are all convinced. And what will they do? if they say, to, to the religious leaders, if they say, well, it came from man. The people will stone us to death. They seek the praise that comes from man and they fear losing that praise rather than seeking the praise that comes from God and fearing Him only. Corrupt leaders also oppose those who come from God. Just as they oppose John, and just as the wicked tenants foolishly oppose the Lord's servants and His Son in the parable. This is what they're doing in this time, in this context. And it's true in every age, isn't it? We can look at our own context in 21st century America. One thing about American culture that we're really good at as a country is turning a profit. We are the economic powerhouse of the world and have been for a long time. And that's not bad to engage in economic work. But what's wrong is then to take those principles and import them into the church or in some way and to turn Jesus into a profit-making industry, right? 
Yet we see it all the time in the church. We are enamored with wealth. Or maybe we're not seeking wealth, but what are we doing? We're seeking the praise that comes from man. And isn't that what Paul faced in his letter to the Philippians? There were some indeed who preached Christ not with a good heart, but to afflict Paul in prison because of their selfish ambition. Paul could rejoice that Christ was proclaimed, but he didn't want the Philippians to go down that same road, but to adopt a mindset of humility, a mindset of service, a mindset of love for others. It's not so different in our day than it was in Paul's or in Jesus' day. People see opportunities to serve their own interests, their ambitions, and they seize upon them. That's what corrupt leadership looks like here in this text and in the church. Ultimately, corrupt leaders oppose God's purposes. But what are God's purposes here in Luke chapter 19 and 20? Well, the way in which we see it is through the many quotations and allusions to the Old Testament in this text. There's so many that we won't have time to look at each one and consider it in its context. But this whole text is filled with quotations and allusions. Let me simply go through some of them and then come back through these ideas. We saw in verse 46 how Jesus quoted from Isaiah 56, verse 7, saying, My house shall be a house of prayer. And here he showed God's purpose for his house. Then he says what they've done is the same as what Jeremiah com- condemned his generation for. In Jeremiah 7:11, You have made it a den of robbers. Luke, even as we've seen, alludes to things he's written prior in Luke's gospel. And then we come to chapter 20, verse 9, and we see this idea of the vineyard, as I mentioned, and that's rooted in Isaiah 5. In Isaiah 5, we see Israel depicted as a vineyard. It would have been impossible for the religious leaders hearing him to not note the connection, to not perceive what he's talking about. Then Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone to show God's purpose, he applies it to himself, for his Christ. That he should be a rejected stone, as it were. That he should be one rejected by men. And yet, in spite of that, he would not just become a stone in the edifice, that larger temple of God that is being built from every tribe and tongue and nation, but he would become the chief stone, the cornerstone, the foundation stone upon which the whole building is set and ordered. God's purpose for his Christ. And he says in verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And these ideas are rooted in Daniel chapter 2 and Isaiah 8, 11 through 15, both texts which warn of judgment for rejecting and opposing the Son, who, the Christ, who is characterized as a stone. In Daniel 2, as a stone that falls and breaks the statue representative of many nations and empires, and then grows into a mountain that fills the earth, symbolizing the kingdom of God and its coming. And likewise, Isaiah 8, 11 through 15, in that text, Isaiah speaks about one who is appointed as a stone of stumbling. In fact, the Lord presents himself in that context as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But in that context, he calls on Isaiah, the faithful remnant in Israel at that time, to take their refuge in the Lord as that stone. And you see all of these texts from the Old Testament where Jesus brings them to mind or we see them from Luke's allusions and echoes, the way that those texts are part of what Luke is portraying before us. And we see God's purposes to gather worshipers from all nations. Of course, Luke 
And his quotation leads out part of Isaiah 56, 7. My house shall be a house of prayer. It goes on for all nations. And in that context, Isaiah's speaking about foreigners joining themselves to the people of God in the latter days. Joining themselves in faithful worship to God. People who were once excluded coming into the kingdom. That's God's purpose. But that's not what the religious leaders are doing. God's purpose is also to both destroy that vineyard, as Isaiah 5 speaks about, but also to save it and to rebuild it. God's purpose is to lay a cornerstone for that rebuilding work. A cornerstone, he says in Zion, as we read in Psalm 118. A stone that will be rejected, but a stone that will also be exalted. A precious stone, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2. That concerns the Christ, his purpose to save and to build for himself and to draw to himself a people through and in and rooted in Christ, founded upon him and faith in him. We see also God's purpose to save sinners by repentance and faith in the one who is the cornerstone in Christ. We see it in John coming and proclaiming God's word in fulfillment of God's word. As Jesus calls our attention back to John and the baptism he proclaims. We see it as we think of the echoes to Isaiah 8 and the call to faith in a world that is broadly rejecting Christ and the Lord. We see it in those echoes of warning of judgment from Daniel chapter 2. In short, we see that God's purpose is to gather worshipers from all nations. God's purpose is to lay a cornerstone for himself in Zion, one who is the Christ, who is the Son of God, who is exalted above all others. His purpose is to save sinners by repentance and faith in that stone. But then as we come back and we consider the corrupt leaders at this time, we see that in every place they're opposing all of those purposes because they're seeking their own interests, not God's purposes, not God's interests. And in seeing that, what we see is that corrupt leaders never change in their opposition of God's purposes because their corruption is necessarily against God's will. Look at the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders and the chief priests. In verse 47, what are they doing? They're seeking to destroy him. And in verse 19, the very same thing they're doing after all of these rebukes in the parable, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. They didn't stop. They didn't receive these words of warning with repentance and say, we are really in the wrong and opposed to God's purpose. No. They rejected them. They rejected the Lord's Christ. They rejected all that God was doing. Like father, like son, in a tragic way as the parable unfolds and shows that they're doing just like their forebearers did in days when Israel went after idols and false gods. And just as that quotation from Jeremiah 7 shows, once again, just like Jeremiah stood in the temple of gates and accused the people of Israel in a former day before the temple would be destroyed, so too, what are you doing in these days before this temple will be destroyed? Like father, like son, they're doing the same thing. It doesn't, of course, mean that repentance is impossible. But it means that we see very commonly that those who corrupt their ways to pursue their own interests continue down that futile path to a tragic destruction. And yet we also see that corrupt leaders will never prevail against God's purposes. The tenants, did they not fail? They failed. 
They thought that they would receive the whole vineyard to themselves, all of the prophets to themselves. The master would finally give up. But that's not what Jesus says. When he asks, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. What do they do when they hear it? They say, surely not. It's the same language Paul uses in Romans when he says, may it never be. Because they perceive that it's against them, but they reject what Jesus is saying. We're not abusing our role as tenants in the vineyard, as the leaders of the people of Israel, they would think. But they're wrong. Jesus looked directly at them. He looked intently and he says, what then is this that is written? This rejection is necessary. It's also part of God's purposes. That stone must be rejected. God's word does not fail. But that stone will also become the cornerstone. God's word does not fail. They think that what they will, they're doing is going to bring an end to this ministry of Christ, but it cannot prevail. So we see that God's word prevails even when corrupt leaders oppose it. It happens in every age. In the prior uh, generations, Israel had many faithless shepherds. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel all came speaking words of condemnation against those leaders in Israel whom they called faithless shepherds. But nevertheless, God appointed for His people one who would be a faithful shepherd, who would shepherd His people Israel. Again, our Lord Jesus Christ. God's purposes will prevail whether we join Him or not. But we can. We should. We must join Him if we're to find salvation in the one who will ultimately prevail over all His enemies. And so what are we called to do as we consider this text? We're called to pursue God's purposes with respect to His people and the Son. That is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We want to be on God's side, but we have to admit that we are all tempted to pursue our own interests, even in our worship. Sometimes we're tempted to put ourselves first, pursuing our own interests before those of others, even by using something like preaching to advance our, uh, our ambitions, even when we use something like singing so that people might think how wonderful this person is at singing or how beautifully they play their instrument. Even when we use service in the church, we can turn it into something that causes strife because we're really seeking to exalt our own interests ahead of others. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to Philippians, urged two women in the church who had served alongside him for the sake of the gospel, Euodia and Syntyche, to get along, to labor together. They were servants, but what was going on is they had conflict and strife because likely, given what we read throughout the rest of Philippians, their service had become a source of contention, a source of rivalry, a source of ambition. When we do that, we're dangerously close to going our own way and pursuing our own interests in opposition to Christ. And we need to be called back, like Paul called those two women back, and urged the Philippians to help them to come back to Christ and to God and to pursue His interests, not ours, His purposes. That is for our greatest good. And it's for His great glory. Sometimes we may, we may be tempted to pursue profit, financial gain, or simply to protect what we have without reference to God's purposes, just as the merchants did here in the temple. 
As I said a moment ago, we live in a culture in America that is motivated by dollars, by the bottom line. And this certainly affects churches. We view everyone and everything in terms of a dollar value. We want greater attendance numbers. Why? Because each person represents a certain dollar value. That's not the right way to think about it. That's not the right motive. Each person represents a priceless value should they come to Christ and place their faith in Him. There's a better motive. Each person represents a stone in God's temple that He is building from every tribe and tongue and nation. So rather than embracing people as objects, we look at people as people made in the image of God who need to be and ought to be and deserve to be loved and served, whose interests should be counted as greater than ours as we pursue God's purposes, knowing that they will not fail. How can we shift our mindset away from these temptations? I think the way is to see what is true and eternal value and what will fail. And we can think back to God's purposes in this text. God has purposed, drawing upon that language we read from 1 Peter 2, to lay a stone that is chosen and precious, a cornerstone who is Jesus Christ, who is the foundation for this temple, who are the people who believe in Him, who will not be put to shame. Believers are these precious stones, and Christ is the precious cornerstone. He will not fail. His purposes for His church will not fail. Now, when you think about how you invest your money, you think, I want to transfer things that are uh, from one investment that is going down to another that is going up. I want to put something that, my, my, my money into something that is, uh, is safe and that won't lose its value but rather will increase and appreciate. That's the way that we think about investments. But we have to recognize that everything that has a monetary value in this world is going to zero. It's all going to zero. When Christ comes again, it will be worth nothing. It doesn't mean that we go and sell every single thing and become utterly destitute right now, but we think about all that God has given us to steward as something that we can use for God's purposes. And we need to think about that as a church. And we have been, and I'm so thankful for those who, at our recent member meeting, have put their minds to think about this, about how we can steward the resources that God has given us for the sake of His glory and His kingdom by serving those who are going to mission fields and going uh, to distant places and to difficult places, by helping them to do that work and by sacrificing for their sake. We're converting that which will go to zero to efforts that are seeking that which will never fail. And that's a good thing. And I want to encourage you in that. And thank you and, and, and thank the Lord, really, I should say, for working in that way in our life together. And encourage you to do it all the more and to think along those lines as we think about how to steward the resources that God has given us together as a church. Not just for missions far away, but also for the work that we do here as we seek to reach our communities for the sake of the gospel. We need to see the eternal and enduring value of Christ and of those who come to Him in faith who will never be put to shame. We also need to see that there are many things that are in our stewardship which will someday fail. We can do that as a church, and we are. I thank the Lord, and I pray that we will do it all the more.
We can do it as individuals as well. As individuals, it always starts with faith in Christ. You either believe in Him unto salvation or you reject Him unto destruction. That faith in Christ involves a turning in your life, a repentance from sin and a turning to Christ and a trusting in Him as the one who paid your debt, a debt that you cannot pay, a debt that you cannot contribute to. You can't even provide anything to it. But Christ has done it all for you, and you believe in Him that He died on the cross for your sins, and in that act, He did all that was necessary for your sins, that in His perfect righteousness, He did all that was necessary for your righteousness to qualify you to come into the presence of God on that final day. You trust in Him. You believe in Him. You follow Him for all your life. It always starts there. Turning from rejecting the cornerstone to taking refuge in the one who is our cornerstone. And then it continues throughout our life for all of us. As we count the cost of following Christ, worth whatever loss might come our way. We're like Paul who looked back at his prior life and all of the things that he could put on his resume, all of his credentials, and he said to the Philippians, I count it all as loss. I count it all as scum. I count it all as dung. Worthless. For the sake of knowing Christ and being found in Him and having the righteousness that comes through faith in Him. And that's an ongoing uh, counting in our lives, an ongoing consideration where we always are considering the cost and always counting it as worth it to follow Christ. Should we suffer the loss of all things because of persecution? Should we suffer the loss of all things because people simply hate us and will not give us jobs or will even take away our assets? So be it. It's worth it to follow Christ all the way to the end. And as a church, then, we do this together, encouraging one another to continue to do it, to continue to serve the Lord faithfully with our resources and stewarding them for the gospel, for the kingdom of God, so that the gospel might be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And we can do this with confidence and certainty. If I said to you, I know the investment that will produce uh, 10% returns every year consistently for the rest of your life, you'd say, I want to know about that investment. I can't say that to you. I don't know anything about that. But I can tell this to you. I know the investment that will produce an eternal weight of glory. It's found in Christ. For God has said, and His word will be fulfilled. The earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So let's be people who are on His side as we pursue this work together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you indeed are doing a mighty work, and this is your work. And in your grace, you are pleased to work this through your people as we cling to Christ, the one who is the foundation of this work and the focus of this work. Father, we pray that you would make us faithful, that you would turn our minds and our eyes to that which has enduring worth, Help us to see that it is precious in your sight that all other things that will fail are to be counted as loss, as nothing, to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and being found in Him. May we be people who commit to this through thick and thin, and may we be people 
who call others to make that same commitment as we indeed engage with them and serve them and humble ourselves before them, seeing their interest is greater than our own. For as you spoke to your Apostle Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. May we be people who demonstrate indeed that we do love you. Lord, we love your Son as we seek to serve your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.